Well, this morning we're going to look at uh, probably the most famous verses in Ecclesiastes, verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles there. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 554. God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? What gain has the worker from his toil? I just want to pause there because that's, he wants us to think about that for a moment. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is, this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. And God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. To us this morning. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. Well, this is the famous opening line that many of you will recognize. Uh, It's the opening line of Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. I read somewhere that uh, when he brought this first chapter to the publisher that the publisher wanted to change it because he said it can't be the best of times and the worst of times, Uh, but Dickens won the day, thankfully. And uh, that editor must not have been familiar with Ecclesiastes 3. Well, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes opens with a poem. And many of you are familiar with this poem, particularly from the popular song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Uh, In the late 1950s, actually, Pete Seeger wrote that song, or he took the words from Ecclesiastes and added his own couple of lines to it. 
1965, that song was, of course, re-recorded by the Birds and became a number one hit. It has the distinction in the U.S. of being the number one, the only number, well, or the number one hit with the oldest lyrics, 10th century uh, lyrics. Well, the poem, verses 1 through 8, reflects on time, our time, our life. And there's a a romantic quality to it, isn't there? Uh, it, it, It looks, as we read it and think about it, it makes us think about the ebb and flow of our lives and maybe the older we are, we can look back on the things that have happened to us, good and bad, and and uh, you know, life is filled with good times and bad times, and and we can look at those things with a sense of sentimentality. There's a a rhythm, a movement to life, a kaleidoscope of experiences. And perhaps the older that we are, the more sentimental we will feel about verses one through eight, because time has a way of wearing the sharp edges off the past, so that we can come to value even the painful, difficult episodes of our past. But Solomon snaps us out of our romantic, sentimental feelings in verse 9. He throws water or snuffs the flame of our warm feelings by asking this rhetorical question. What gain has the worker from his toil? Solomon does not wax poetic about the experiences of life. He says that it is toil, wearisome labor. And he, in essence, essence asks the question, what is the point? What is the point? You go through this difficult life, and what have you gained? He asked the same question back in chapter 1, verse 3, right at the very beginning of the book. And he then talked about the cycle of the earth, the sun rising and setting, the the wind blowing here, yonder, and there, and the the water cycle, all these things that just keep going round and round and round. And he says at the end of that that it is just full of weariness, monotony. So the poem of verses 1 through 8 that prompted him to ask this question in verse 9 is not positive news to Solomon. The structure of the poem communicates to us some points that I want us to look at here briefly, and it paints a picture of the problem that we have. Well, first, there is little in this list, if you look at each item on the list, there is little in this list of events of life over which we have control. We don't dictate our birth. A few of us will dictate our death. The seasons dictate when it is time to plant, when it's time to harvest. We can be laughing and dancing one day, and then suddenly something happens to us or a loved one, and in an instant we are weeping and mourning. As one commentator put it, We dance to a tune or many tunes, not of our own making. When I was a boy, I enjoyed going out on the river uh, and and tubing along the river. 
You know, you're just floating along, and sometimes you get the excitement of some rapids, and, and it was a lot of fun for a, a, a boy. Or... But when I was an adult and took my own children uh, rafting or tubing on the river, it, it ceased to be fun. You know, you're worried about your little ones, and you're constantly fighting the river to ensure their safety. They've gotten stuck on the rocks, and they can't get off, and you've got to go back and get them, and... Or they've drifted off into the trees and they're frightened of the snakes or whatever and you're trying to get over there to them or you're trying to tell the older ones to slow down and the younger ones can't keep up and you're all spread out and you're being pulled along, all of you, along this river over which you have no control. Well, time is like a river that carries us along. Sooner or later there's going to be unavoidable rocks and rapids that come into our path. And we have no control over that. I'm not a huge country music fan, but I do like some of the older classic country songs. One of my favorites is Louisiana Woman, Mississippi Man by Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn. Well, in the song, Conway Twitty sings about seeing his Louisiana woman on the other side of the Mississippi River, which he notes is a mile wide. And he is so in love with her, he is contemplating jumping in, even though there's alligators everywhere, and swimming right across there to see his Louisiana woman. Well, if he's going to do that, alligators are the least of his worries. I mean, if you think you're going to go swim right across the Mississippi River to see your Louisiana woman, you're sadly mistaken. You know, the Mississippi River looks like a big old lazy river, but the current is extremely strong. And if they wrote a sequel to that song, it would be about how the Mississippi man ended up in New Orleans and how he had to hike uh, several, several hundred miles back up to see his Louisiana woman. Or, or maybe just Loretta Lynn singing a sad song about how her Mississippi man is drowned out in the Gulf of Mexico somewhere. <laughs> I don't think that would be a very big hit. Well, the currents of life, like the Mississippi River, take us often where we never plan to go for good or for ill. Life can be wearisome labor. And that's what Solomon's pointing out here. That it's uncontrollable sometimes what happens to life, what happens to us in life. Also, the poem points out to, to us the lack of permanence in life. Life is constantly changing. Nothing we pursue has any permanence. But soon, you know, when we've thrown ourselves into something which offers us fulfillment, some pursuit, time and circumstances happen and we find ourselves doing the exact opposite, something we never planned to do, something that you never imagined you would be doing at maybe another time in your life. It's just taken you there, life, circumstances. Well, the poem drones on, repeating the word time, 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 time. It's almost like it's a clock ticking, ticking your life away, and it becomes oppressive. I have a, a clock in my office, and it's one of those wall clocks that's got a second hand, and it ticks. And, uh, you know, I've gotten used to it, so I don't really hear it anymore. Or maybe the battery's dead, I'm not sure. But, you know, it really is ominous to hear that ticking constantly 
There are 24 hours in a day, 8,760 hours in a regular year, and every four years we get an extra 24 hours with the leap year, 8,784. The average lifespan of an American is currently on average 78.6 years, and that means on average if we live to that ripe age, we have right about 689,000 hours of life to live. And if we take out sleep, which takes up about 30% of our time, that leaves us about 482,000 waking hours. And each day, 24 hours of our life is eaten away. Kind of like Pac-Man, you know, whack, 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 just eating it up. And it's disappearing. Our life is like an hourglass, but we can't see how much sand we have left. We can only hear it flowing down, grain by grain. And that's why Solomon asked this rhetorical question in verse 9. What gain is there in all this toil? It's wearisome. He wants you to think about that and feel it. So feel that for a moment. Well, in the first moment, in the first sermon I preached on Ecclesiastes, I told you that Solomon, the preacher here, spends most of his time looking horizontal, horizontally instead of vertically. Um, he's just wanting us to look at life under the sun, life under the sun, life that we all live just in this world, the human experience without reference to God or eternity or anything beyond the here and the now and the span of our lives. His ultimate goal is to get us to look vertically. He wants you to see the futility of living life without any reference to God whatsoever, just living for this, this experience, this lifetime. He wants us to look ultimately to God for meaning. In the passage before us, is one of those times within Ecclesiastes where he does actually turn his gaze vertically to look at God. You know, the word God is used 41 times in Ecclesiastes. Eight of those times are here in verse 3, or chapter 3. So it is one of the God hotspots in the book, and especially verses 10 through 15. Thankfully, there's a verse 10 through 15 here, or else we'd be left in despair but he, he forces us to look at God. And look at all the things that he says about God. I'll just list, list them off quickly. God sets the times. God gives us the business of life. God gives food and drink and pleasure in our toil. God makes everything suitable for its time. God has put eternity in our hearts. God has a beginning and end to his creation. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. God seeks what has been driven away or what has been pursued. You see, he's looking right at God in the midst of the despair of time, time ticking away. And he has this reflection, and I think verses 10 through 11 are really the center, centerpiece of this meditation of Solomon. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So he's, he's looked at all of life. He's, he's seen time and, and all of the human experience. He's surveyed it. He's seen it. And here's his conclusion, verse 11. He has made everything 
beautiful in its time. Also, he, put, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Verse 11 enables us to see perpetual change not as something unsettling, but as an unfolding pattern, scintillating and God-given. The trouble for us is not that life refuses to keep still. It changes all the time. That's not the problem. But the problem is that we only see a fraction of its movement and its subtle, intricate design. God has designed it, and He's designed it to be beautiful. Instead of changelessness, there is something better, a dynamic divine purpose with, as he says, a beginning and an end. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And no matter what life throws at you, with God, it is a beautiful experience, even though there is a time to be born and a time to die. And there's a time to kill and a time to heal. And there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. Even in spite of those things, God is sovereign over time. He has created time. He is outside of time. He knows the beginning and the end all at the same time. See, he's not just living in the moment with us. He sees it all. He sees the, the beginning at the same time that he sees the end. I know that's kind of mind-blowing, but that's how great is our God. So he, he states this fact that in the monotony of life, yes, it can be monotonous, but God is sovereign over time. God has a purpose and a plan beyond our time. And we need to look at that. And he comes to two conclusions. Uh, two conclusions that are marked by the word, I perceived. Look at verse 12. The first conclusion, and these are the two points that we draw from this knowledge. I mean, we can talk about the introduction being time is monotonous, time drones on, time changes, and we have no control, and, and all the negative aspects of looking at time as we live under the sun. But then he points us to God, that God, there's something bigger here that God is doing that, that has within it our time, but even beyond that, eternity. Eternity past, eternity future. God has a purpose in it all and a plan for it all. So, he says, two things. First, be joyful and do good and find enjoyment in your toil. That's point number one <clears throat> that the preacher Solomon makes to us. And the second point is to fear God. Fear God. So let's look at those two things. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good <clears throat> as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. If you are living your life in relation to God, which you can only do through Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but if you have a relationship with God in Christ, 
then you can live in this life and, and you can be joyful and you can do good in the midst of all the difficulties of life. And you can eat and you can drink and you can take pleasure in your toil. These things come to us from God, from having a relationship with God in Christ. But you say, what about the difficult things? What about the bad diagnosis from the doctor? What about the job loss? What about the broken relationship that was not my fault? What about those things? Well, Romans 8, 28 through 29 tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, we can be joyful even in the midst of great suffering because we can remind ourselves that God has a purpose and a plan. He is accomplishing an end. He has something that he is doing in our lives every moment of the day if we belong to him if we have been called according to his purpose. Everything that happens in the ebb and flow of life as we're carried along to places where we never considered that we would be or ever wanted to be, we can be confident if we are in Christ that whatever happens, it is serving that end who can make us conform to the image of his Son. We are his children, and he is refining us and perfecting us and and pulling out all the things that, that are not like Christ, that don't honor Him, that are not holy, that are only hurtful and destructive to ourselves, He has our best interest at heart always. So we can say, even in the midst of these trials that we face that are beyond our control, that yes, God, I don't understand it, I may not like it, but I'm going to trust that what you're doing is wise and is for my good. He has promised that. He will hold you fast, as we sang. Even when you think you can't make it, when your faith will fail, he's going to hang on to you. He's going to send you a preacher to tell you to read Romans 8:28, like I'm doing today, to be reminded of that so that you'll hang on to him. So be joyful in the midst of even the trials and do good. You know, as we live this life, the time that we have here, do good. And take pleasure in the things that you do. Find the thing that you enjoy. Don't pursue the things that are meaningless and pointless. As we consider the limited number of hours that we have, how are we spending our time? Are we spending it just worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, constantly fretting? Are we going to spend it looking at Facebook or playing Candy Crush? You know, how are we going to do good when we're looking at our phone all day? Guilty as charged. The kind of people that grasp this are like Paul. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's preparing us 
for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, the rocks, the rapids, the broken relationships, the the illnesses, the lost jobs, the worries that we are weighed down with, not looking at those things, but to the unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're not going to last forever. But the things that are unseen, the eternal weight of glory, that's eternal. That's eternal. That'll last forever. We need to be reminded of that. Now, what was Paul's life like? Was it light and momentary afflictions? Well, compared to the eternal weight of glory, it was, but the man was stoned. I don't think I'd want to be stoned. That's not a great way to die, have a mob of people throw rocks at you until you are killed. Well, he was left for dead. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked and spent the night in the open sea. He, was, he endured all kinds of suffering in his life. He was imprisoned. People were seeking to kill him. But it was light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. The psalmist understood this as well. Psalm 35 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. There is a dawn coming for the believer. Uh, The sun will rise, and the Son Son of God, Jesus Christ, will return, and He will usher in eternal joy with His kingdom. Well, all the circumstances of life for the believer are woven together, and God uses them. There was a commercial, a direct TV commercial a few years ago, and I love this commercial, and you may remember it, but here's, here's what it said. When your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. And when people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. See? Consequences of all these things coming along in life are woven together. Now, a non-believer is going to end up in the ditch, but the Christian will never end up in the ditch. Well, he might end up in the ditch, but it won't be forever. All of our lives for the believer is woven together, and there's a purpose and a plan to it, and, and it's a good end, eternal weight of glory. It's all serving God's ultimate purpose. The second conclusion that, that Solomon makes here is to fear God. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. See, his plan, his purpose, what he's doing in the world is forever. Is forever. It's not transient. It's not temporal. It's not vanity like Solomon keeps pointing out, a vapor, ephemeral, not lasting. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. 
That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Simply saying God is sovereign over time. And he has a plan, as I've been saying to you, that cannot be thwarted. He knows the beginning and the end. Nothing escapes the dominion of God who has everything within the divine purview. And Solomon is telling us about God so that we might fear God and live dependent upon our loving Heavenly Father. He's pointing you to Him. He wants you to to turn to Him in the futility of life, in the, in the transient nature of life, in the limited number of hours we have on this earth. Turn to God, the eternal God. God is sovereign over time. Everything that happens is under His command and control. And this knowledge should make a difference in the way Christians think about and live life. Always with a respect to God, along with the psalmist in Psalm 31, 14 and 15, who says, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Because he has a plan. And we've seen how he's executing that plan. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're back to that, adoption. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're going to inherit eternal life with Christ forever. See, the point is that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Nobody really noticed. A few shepherds, a few wise men from the east came to see him later. It wasn't a big deal to anyone around there. But this is the one who was born according to God's plan so that we could be a part of God's eternal purpose. Because Jesus is the door. He is the gate. He is the way, the truth, and the life And no one can come to the Father but through Him. In Revelation 5, there's this beautiful picture that, that John sees, this vision that he sees. It says, I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. What is this scroll? What is this? It's sealed up. No one can open it. It's God's purpose and God's plan. And and if there's no one to carry out God's purposes and plans on the earth, then that's sad news. And John sees it, and he understands it, and he's weeping. He, he's brokenhearted because what God desires cannot be carried out. But then there's verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. What a glorious, glorious passage that is. The lamb that was slain, he's the one who has carried out God's plan. And we can enter into God's plan and his purpose for, for life, for eternity, through Christ. He's the one that's worthy. Can you say, along with, the, with what uh, we, we heard at the beginning of the service, you know, then sings my soul, my God, how great thou art. Does your soul sing that this morning? Do you look at this passage and think, wow, God is great. He has a purpose and a plan, even in the midst of the difficulties of my life. And I'm going to trust him because my times are in his hands and no one can snatch me away from him because of what Christ has done in dying for me so that I might be cleansed and renewed. And, and everything that he does has a purpose and a good purpose for me. Well, my mom had a, had a little poem on her, in our bathroom wall and I always liked the poem. It's a great reminder. It's a reminder of Romans 8, 28 and 29. It's called The Weaver. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. <clears throat> I cannot see the colors. He works steadily. Oftentimes he weaves sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. No matter what you're going through today, God, if you are his, God has a purpose and a plan, and he is, he is executing that purpose and plan in your life. You're being conformed to the image of, of his Son, and there's an eternal weight of glory waiting on you one day. So hang in there. Fear the Lord. Put your trust in him as you walk through this life. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for the confidence, for the encouragement that this passage gives to us. Lord, we can get bogged down in all the miseries of this life and the, the troubles that we are enduring and the troubles that we see all around us. And we want to say, how long, O oh Lord? And come, Lord Jesus. And we do say those things, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help everyone here today to turn to you to put their trust in you and in the provision that you have made for salvation in Christ. Lord, forgive us for trying to make out like we are in control of things when, Lord, you're the only one in control. Lord, we pray that each one of us would just rest in your, the palm of your hand knowing that you, can, you will protect us. You are our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. And we say... In our soul, how great thou art. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.